For all those obsessed with UFO phenomena and tales of alien abduction, you've likely heard the story of Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker. It's the story of a supposed alien abduction that occurred on a riverbank in Pascagoula, Mississippi on October 11th, 1973. But before we get started, I want to make it clear that this episode will not simply be a rehashing of the same old story you've heard over and over again. That's because in the last year, new details and evidence have surfaced about this particular incident. Calvin Parker broke his silence about the incident back in 2018 when he published a book recounting his side of the story. Later in 2019, he published another follow-up book that includes even more compelling evidence. Now, if you haven't heard this story, well, it's a good one. Another reason why this story is so close to my heart personally is because I have a lot of connection to the city where this incident took place. See, I was born in Singen River Hospital, located in Pascagoula, Mississippi, mere miles from where this story takes place. Though I was born in Pascagoula, I was raised 39 miles north in a small community just across the Jackson County line. My father worked at a chemical plant located in Pascagoula for 34 years. In order to obtain the credentials for my job I have outside this podcast, I had to do clinical work at the same hospital where I was born, right there in Pascagoula. My brother worked for the Jackson County Sheriff's Department for many years, which you'll hear a lot about in this story. And my last residence before I ever left my home state of Mississippi was in Pascagoula. And every time I visit home, my parents and I have to get dinner at least once from Bozo's right off of Ingalls Avenue, right there in the heart of Pascagoula, Mississippi. So, considering my inadvertent connection and the nature of this story, it's only necessary that I feature it here on Parasensory. Right now, you are hearing the voices of two men, Charlie Hickson, age 42, and Calvin Parker, age 19. It's close to midnight on October 11, 1973. They're in a room alone at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and they are unaware that they are being recorded. I'm 
Charlie and Calvin are discussing an incident that happened just a couple of hours ago. An incident that would change both their lives forever. The two men find themselves at the sheriff's department because they called in to report this incident. Charlie and Calvin claimed to the sheriff that while they were fishing on the banks of the Pascagoula River earlier that night, they were met by a strange floating object, a large craft of some sort. And from that craft emerged three strange creatures who then grabbed them and floated them aboard. Calvin tells officers he lost consciousness and doesn't remember much. Charlie, on the other hand, says that all he can determine from his memory is that the creatures seemingly examined him with the device. And then after about 20 or 30 minutes, the men were placed back onto the riverbank where they had been plucked. Once the men arrived at the sheriff's department, they were interrogated separately. Of course, none of the officers believed them. Later on, they were put in a room together and left by themselves. The interrogating officer stepped out on the pretext that he was getting a cup of coffee and that he would be right back. But unbeknownst to Charlie and Calvin, a recording device was on, recording their every word. It's the tape you hear now. The secret recording was, of course, in an attempt to catch Charlie and Calvin in their lie. Their lie about being abducted. By what? Aliens? In a UFO? The officers knew they would surely catch them discussing their hoax to each other. They would catch them in their lie and charge them with false reporting. How dare they waste taxpayer money on this bullshit? What a waste of resources. Cops don't have time for this shit, not this late at night. After giving Charlie and Calvin time to discuss their hoax, the officers review the tape. They expected to hear two men conspiring with each other. They expected to hear about a plan of a hoax. But the tape didn't record two men saying things to each other like, Do you think we fooled them? How much more smoke can we blow up their ass? We're really putting one over on these dumb cops. Instead, the officers heard two men whose voices sometimes trembled. They heard the sound of fear as both men talked to each other in that room alone. The more the officers listened, it became more and more obvious that both men's voices were full of terror, confusion, and panic. At that moment, Sheriff Fred Diamond of the Jackson County Sheriff's Office became convinced that these men 
were telling the truth. The next day, Sheriff Diamond and his Captain Glenn Ryder both made statements to the Mississippi Press. Captain Ryder states, I didn't believe their story at first, but I do now, after I got them on tape. If they were lying to me, then they should be in Hollywood. Sheriff Diamond states, I believe they're sincere, and I believe their story is true. Join me now for this story that is shrouded in all things mysterious and enigmatic. A story about two men who are given a glimpse of what is beyond mankind's understanding of reality. Join me now for part one of Parasensory's exclusive look at the Pascagoula Incident. Charles Hickson, known as Charlie, was born on April 16, 1931, in Jones County, Mississippi. He was a veteran of the Korean War and was awarded five major battle stars for his 20 months of Korean service. Charlie married his wife Blanche in 1954, and they had five children. There is not a whole lot written about Charlie's life, but one thing that stood out significantly about him is that he loved to fish. Someone close to Charlie once wrote about him that he'd rather fish than eat. Although there isn't much recorded about Charlie's early life, we do know that he had a fishing buddy named Calvin Parker. Now this isn't the Calvin Parker that would later become Charlie's co-abductee. No, this Calvin Parker was the Calvin Parker of the story's father. On November 2nd, 1954, Calvin Sr. and his wife Betty Lou had their first baby. They named him Calvin Ray Parker Jr. About 10 years later in 1964, Calvin Jr.'s parents built a house in Sandersville, Mississippi. And that's when Calvin Jr. remembers meeting Charlie Hickson for the first time. Charlie's family and the Parker family were pretty close. They both used to go camping and take trips together. They would eat dinner at each other's houses often. Charlie had two sons around the same age as Calvin Jr. And of course, as Calvin grew older, he got to know Charlie better and better. When Calvin was around 15, Charlie got off work early one day and said the business he worked for was shutting down. He was out of work and needed to find a new job. After about two weeks, he found one at a shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Calvin had quit school at this point and worked as a welder at a machine shop in Laurel, Mississippi. Over the next few years, Calvin and his father would only get to see Charlie by driving down to the coast and fishing with him or when Charlie would come back up to Laurel and spend the weekend with Calvin's family. These are the years that Calvin really got to know Charlie as a friend. They would sit and talk about Charlie's time in Korea. They would discuss fishing, talk about family. Charlie and Calvin saw each other as family. 
When Calvin was 19, he became engaged and decided that he needed a better job that paid a decent wage. His dad suggested he talk to Charlie about it, and so he did. So one weekend, Calvin drove down to Gaucher, Mississippi, where Charlie and his family lived in an apartment. Charlie told Calvin he could get him a job at the shipyard working under him, where Charlie was a foreman. That weekend, they drove up and down the coast, and Charlie showed Calvin around the area. When they got back to Charlie's apartment, Charlie asked his wife if it was okay to rent their extra bedroom to Calvin until he found a place of his own. Calvin started work at the shipyard on Wednesday, October 3, 1973. The following weekend, Calvin drove back to Laurel, spent time with his fiancée, Waynette, and his mother, and was planning to drive back down to Gaucher Sunday to be ready for work that Monday. This would be Calvin's last normal weekend. The following week was unremarkable as usual until Thursday, October 11th, 1973. On this day, Charlie found Calvin at work during lunch and asked if he wanted to go fishing after they got off. Calvin said that he didn't really want to go because of the bugs, the little noceums that already ate him up all day when he was at work. Charlie assured Calvin that he had some bug spray that will keep them away, to which Calvin thought, why the hell haven't you told me about that already? Calvin also stressed the point that he didn't have any of his fishing equipment. Charlie told him he could use his. So ultimately, Calvin was convinced into fishing with Charlie after work. After work, the two men went to Charlie's apartment and had dinner that Charlie's wife prepared for them. After that, the two set off to go fishing at a spot Charlie knew about right off Highway 90 on the Pascagoula River. Charlie told Calvin how there was an old grain elevator at this spot and some of the grain the ship would unload would spill into the river. A spot with a lot of grain in the river meant a spot with a lot of fish to catch in the river. But, before they went to that particular spot, Charlie suggested fishing at an old abandoned shipyard first. It was close to Charlie's apartment, so he told Calvin that they might as well try it out first. Once they arrived, Calvin noticed a no trespassing sign and mentioned to Charlie that maybe it wasn't a good idea to be fishing out there. Charlie assured him that he fished there all the time and he had never run into any trouble. So the two men parked, unloaded their fishing gear, and walked down to an old dilapidated pier. They fished for a while until the sky fell dark. Calvin remembers it being a bright night because of a possible full moon, and by my research, there was indeed a 100% visible full moon that night. They were getting nowhere with the fish. Calvin finally told Charlie, Hell, there's no fish out here. Let's go to the old grain elevator that you was talking about. According to Charlie's account, he had just gotten a bite and told Calvin to give him a few more minutes. Charlie's recollection also states that at that moment, he turned to grab more bait behind him, but his attention was quickly averted. Instead of grabbing for bait, 
Charlie was now looking at what he described as some sort of craft silently hovering about two feet above the ground. No noise came from the object, only a blue light that looked like it was pulsating or maybe revolving, it was difficult to tell. Calvin had also turned around at this point. Because of the blue light, he initially thought it was the police coming to get them for trespassing. In retrospect, Calvin has said that he now wishes it had been the police. Charlie had many questions racing through his head about how this craft wasn't making any noise and how it was being controlled. He wondered if anyone or anything was on board. Calvin, although in pure confusion, studied the object. It was about 8 or 10 feet in height, maybe 30 feet long, and both men described it as oval or football shaped. The object just floated there in front of them. Bright blue lights obstructed some of their view of it. Suddenly, the craft lit up even brighter. It seemed that some kind of opening had appeared. Calvin describes the light that spilled out as blinding, like someone welding. There was no visible door, only an opening that seemed to just appear. The two men looked at each other. It was obvious that both of them had had a mutual sense of fear. Just as Calvin thought to himself that he should make a run for it, three creatures emerged from the bright opening of the craft. And like a bolt of lightning, the creatures were on the men. Charlie wondered if he was hallucinating. He knew from Calvin's frightful scream that he was not. The three creatures seemed to glide or levitate toward them fast. They never touched the ground. They were gray in color. No necks. Their bullet-shaped heads seemed to be directly connected to their shoulders. There was a cone-shaped protrusion where a nose should have been, and the same protrusions where ears should be found. There were no eyes. The creatures were about five feet in height. What was perceived as legs were fused together and terminated with rounded feet similar to an elephant's. Their arms were long in proportion to their bodies, and their hands resembled pinchers, much like the claw of a lobster. The creatures never showed the ability to bend anywhere except for at the elbow and wrist. So, no neck movement, because there was no neck, no bending or turning at what would be the waist, and no knees. Their movements would later be described as almost robotic. The two men also couldn't tell if what covered the creatures was a skin or a type of material, but whatever it was, it was extremely wrinkled, like wrinkled skin. Charlie described in an interview that the creatures had horizontal wrinkles that covered their bodies. Two of the creatures grabbed Charlie and the other grabbed Calvin. Charlie felt a pain in his left arm, but it quickly vanished. His body became relaxed. Calvin's body did the same when he was grabbed by the left arm, and he heard what sounded like a shot of air. Pretty soon, both men realized that they were much more than relaxed. They were completely helpless. This is the part of the story where Charlie says Calvin seemed to pass out, possibly from fear. As the creatures took both the men inside the craft, Charlie thought about all the missing people he had heard about throughout his life on the news or in the paper. He wondered about the people who seemed to just vanish. Was this what happened to them? Were they taken away by strange creatures in a strange craft? Is this my last day on earth, he thought. 
He kept telling himself that people were going to think that he and Calvin just drowned and washed out to sea, that they'll be searched for, but no one will ever find their bodies. Blinding light was about the only thing that could be described once aboard the craft. While Charlie prepared for imminent death, something came out of what could only be perceived as a wall. This something looked like an eye, a very large eye, a little bit bigger than a baseball. Charlie tried closing his eyes, but realized he was almost completely paralyzed. He could only move his eyes. He once again felt a pain in his left arm and became relaxed and helpless for a second time. The eye approached Charlie's face. After a minute, it began moving down his body, then back up to his face, then moved over his head, and he assumed it moved down the back of his body. It seemed to be scanning him. Charlie couldn't move. He tried wiggling his toes, but it was impossible. He watched the eye put itself back into the wall. Charlie wished for death. Please don't take me away! Charlie knew he was saying these words, but he couldn't hear his voice. He realized that he was all alone. He began to think back to his days of combat in Korea. This is when Charlie essentially told himself to get his shit together, to keep calm, and to not panic. Charlie was successful in calming himself, but shortly after, the creatures came back. They grabbed him, just like before. An opening once again appeared, but this time, instead of blinding light spilling out, Charlie could see the riverbank. The creatures floated him through the opening, out of the craft, and placed him back where they plucked him from. That's when he saw Calvin, on his knees, by the riverbank, with his arms outstretched, screaming. In Charlie's book, titled UFO Contact at Pascagoula, published in 1983 about the incident, he writes that before this incident took place, while he and Calvin were still just enjoying a normal night of fishing, I had no way of knowing, but before that night was over, I would see more terror on that young man's face than I had seen in the five major battles I went through in Korea. He later writes, There was more fear on Calvin's face than I have ever seen on anyone's. Now when Charlie was inside the craft, Calvin was nowhere to be seen. We last left Calvin when he passed out, right before the creatures took the men aboard the craft. You see, after this incident took place, Calvin kept to himself out of the spotlight and didn't talk much about it except to certain people. But in 2018, 45 years after the close encounter, Calvin essentially broke his silence by publishing a book titled Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, about his side of the story. And according to Calvin, the fact of the matter is, he never passed out that night. Nope. According to Calvin's side of the story, he was so terrified and was on his way to starting his new life with a fiancé he was scheduled to marry in just the following month, and he had a new job, a good, decent-paying job. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want people thinking he was crazy. He didn't want to ruin the life he had not even yet started. So after the encounter, he and Charlie agreed to tell whoever asked or wanted to know that Calvin had passed out and didn't remember anything. You must also remember Charlie and Calvin's history. Charlie had known Calvin since he was a young boy. Charlie was a father figure to Calvin, and Calvin was seen as a son to Charlie. In Calvin's own words, 
It was like Charlie was taking care of one of his kids. So I just stuck with the story of me passing out as we thought it was the best way to protect me at the time. Thinking back, Charlie probably did a lot of his interviews to keep everyone away from me, thinking again that this would satisfy the press and protect me at the same time. Charlie wanted to protect Calvin so that Calvin could have a fighting chance at living a normal life after this traumatic event. We'll get to all that later though. So instead of passing out, Calvin remembers the creatures floating him into the craft. He felt weightless. Just as Charlie's experience, Calvin couldn't move a muscle except for his eyes. He describes the craft as bright but never saw a source for the light. The creatures took him into a room and placed him on what looked like a table, although he didn't feel anything beneath him. He seemed to be placed upright at a 45-degree angle. Suddenly, a square box he describes as about the size of a deck of cards begins moving around his body. Again, like Charlie's eye, this square box seemed to be performing some sort of scan on Calvin's body. As the object scanned, Calvin notices a small being enter the room. This being, for whatever reason, allows Calvin to feel safe. He describes the creature as thin-faced and about five feet in height, gray in color like the creatures that carried him aboard, but looked more pleasant. The being had big brown eyes and seemed more human-like as opposed to the creatures who grabbed him and Charlie. They again seemed more robotic or mechanical. Calvin heard a hissing sound followed by the words, Don't be afraid. The words seemed to be coming from this small being who had just entered the room, but its lips never moved. Calvin felt that he could understand what the being was thinking and had the sense that it could read his mind, knowing that he was scared. After the square object seemed to complete its scan, the small being left the room. Before he knew it, he was back in the grips of the robotic-like creatures with the wrinkled skin. They floated him out of the craft and placed him back on the river from where they had taken him. As what felt like anesthesia was wearing off and he was regaining movement in parts of his body, the last to go was his arms. Calvin couldn't put his arms down. Then he finally heard a familiar voice. Calvin! Calvin, are you okay? Charlie ran up and grabbed him. The two heard a zipping sound and like that, the craft was gone. Charlie noticed that Calvin was nearly in shock. He had seen this in Korea many times and the terror on Calvin's face said it all. Charlie shook Calvin, but couldn't snap him out of it. Charlie shook him again, this time really hard, trying to get Calvin to come back to reality. Calvin finally relaxed, slumped to the ground, and started screaming. It took a while before Calvin even realized who Charlie was. But after a few minutes, Calvin was okay. He was back by the river, back on earth, with his friend Charlie. The two men sat by the riverbank in shock and in silence. After a while, Calvin finally spoke and said, Let's not dare tell anyone about this. They both then started asking each other questions. Were you scared? Are you okay? Did they do anything to you? Calvin said it felt like he had died and come back to life. Charlie assured him that everything was okay now, even though he didn't believe that himself. 
He actually wondered if the creatures would come back. Both men agreed not to say a word about this to anyone. As they walked toward Calvin's car to leave, they noticed that the passenger side windows were shattered, but still in place. Once they tried to leave, the car wouldn't start. This was a new car and there had never been any problems with it. After a few tries, it finally cranked. Charlie somehow produced a bottle of Jim Beam out of nowhere, took a swig, and said, let's go home. Now, this is where Charlie and Calvin's accounts about what happened after the incident become inconsistent. According to Charlie's account of that night, as they journeyed towards home, Charlie considered their conversation about not telling anyone, but then felt compelled to report what had happened. He mentioned this to Calvin, and Calvin's response was, Hell no, we're not going to tell anyone. Charlie states that they both stopped at a service station, and after talking about it for a while, they decided to call Keesler Air Force Base, located in Biloxi, about 30 miles west. Charlie made the call using the phone at the service station. A female operator answered. After he tried to explain what had happened, the lady told him that the military doesn't deal with that sort of thing anymore and that Project Blue Book had been closed since 69. She then instructed Charlie to call his local police department and report the incident to them. Charlie just hung up. He was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe this lady just brushed them off like that. Calvin's account says that once they left the site of the incident, Charlie asked him to pull over at the Mississippi Press building. Calvin says Charlie got out and was gone about two or three minutes and came right back. Calvin asked what time it was, and Charlie said he didn't know that he didn't see a clock in the building. Calvin then explains that once they start heading back towards the apartment, he decided to stop at a local hangout that served alcohol, went in, and ordered a beer. All Calvin was thinking about was trying to calm his nerves. This is the point in Calvin's account where he says Charlie mentions calling Keesler Air Force Base about the incident. Calvin asked him not to, but Charlie told him that if he didn't want to say anything about it, then he would just tell him that he passed out. Calvin was reluctant, but ultimately agreed to let Charlie make the call. They then left the bar and drove to a store close to Charlie's apartment. It is at this point in Calvin's account that Charlie made the call to Keesler Air Force Base. And just as Charlie's account describes, they told him that they didn't handle stuff like that anymore and to call their local authorities, meaning the police department. At this point, Charlie and Calvin's account become more consistent. Charlie told Calvin about Keesler telling him to call the police. Calvin told him that that was a bad idea because he had already had a few drinks in him and the police weren't going to believe them. Charlie made the call anyway. Captain Glenn Ryder of the Jackson County Sheriff's Department took the call that night. Charlie said, now you're going to laugh at me, but this is serious, and proceeded to tell the story of his and Calvin's abduction. And just as Charlie predicted, Captain Ryder laughed at him. He told Charlie to stay where he was and that they would come to them. So Charlie and Calvin sat in the car as a couple of officers arrived. So they checked over the car, flashed their flashlights inside, and then asked Calvin to step out of the vehicle. They made Calvin perform a field sobriety test and determined that he was okay to drive. The officer told the two men to follow them back to the police station where they could make a report. Another inconsistency in both accounts pops up here. According to Charlie's account, on the way to the police station, Calvin pulled into the Mississippi Press to check the time because there was a big clock located inside the building. Then they proceeded to the sheriff's office. 
If you remember, though, Calvin's recollection is that Charlie asked him to stop at the Mississippi Press building almost right after they left the scene of the abduction. As to which account may be correct will be discussed later. Once at the police station, the two men were put in separate rooms and questioned by the police. Calvin thought back to what Charlie had said about telling them that he just passed out and didn't know anything. So that's what Calvin did. Because Charlie was talking, the officers made him tell the story over and over again. Finally, Charlie and Calvin were put in a room together by themselves. This is when the officers secretly recorded the men's conversation. After a while, a deputy came back into the room and retrieved the recording device from a drawer. The deputy sternly told them, You do know that if this is a hoax, you two are going to spend a lot of time in jail. Calvin told him that spending time in jail would be better than spending time where they just were. By this time, Sheriff Fred Diamond was at the station and was listening to the secret tape. After the officers heard the tape, they went back into the room to question the men further. Calvin describes in his account that at this point, the deputies are much nicer. Something seemed to have changed in the officers' demeanors. But because Charlie and Calvin didn't know about the secret tape, they were confused as to why they saw such a change in the officers. Soon after, Sheriff Diamond came in and told the two men they were free to go. Before they left, the two men begged the sheriff not to tell anyone, and Sheriff Diamond gave his word. As they drove back to the apartment, Charlie and Calvin didn't say a word to each other. Both were exhausted. All either of them wanted to do was get some sleep and forget that this whole thing ever happened. The next day, both Charlie and Calvin were just hoping for a normal day at work. Neither of them got hardly any sleep the night before, and neither of them wanted to go to work. Charlie, though, as a foreman, felt a responsibility to the company he worked for. There were moments that morning when the memory of the night before would creep up in Charlie's mind, and it would make his skin crawl. He shuddered just thinking about it. But whether it was how he learned to cope with stress in Korea, being an older man, or just his personality, Charlie would regain his composure and carry on. The same could not be said for Calvin. It wasn't long after the two arrived at work that everyone could tell that something was wrong with Calvin. He could barely do his work. He would disappear throughout the morning to cry or catch his breath or try to calm his shaking body out of a panic attack. Before Charlie could get away to check on Calvin, he was called to a telephone on the shipyard. On the other end was a journalist from Jackson, Mississippi, asking about his alien abduction from the night before. Charlie froze. He stood silent for a few seconds. The journalist on the other end asked if he was still there. Charlie quickly snapped out of his trance and said, No comment and hung up the phone. How in the hell did he find out? Charlie asked himself. Sheriff Diamond promised he wouldn't say anything. Anger shot through Charlie. Soon after, it seemed like every phone on the shipyard was ringing with journalists, reporters, and news people asking to speak with Charlie and Calvin. Charlie immediately called the sheriff's department to give Fred Diamond a piece of his mind. 
Fred Diamond himself answered the call, and before Charlie could say anything besides who he was, Sheriff Diamond frantically asked if he and Calvin could come down to the station immediately. Newspeople have invaded our office. They want to talk to you and Calvin, the sheriff said. Damn it, Fred, you promised us last night that you wouldn't say anything to the newspeople. Every telephone in the shipyard is ringing from all over the country, Charlie said. Charlie, I don't know how it leaked out of this office, but anyway, we can't keep a story like this from the world. Can you and Calvin come over now? Charlie slammed the phone down on the receiver. He turned to see that two fellow foremans had heard part of the conversation with the sheriff. The two asked Charlie what was going on and what was wrong with Calvin. Charlie trusted these two men. They were personal friends as well as co-workers. Charlie made the choice to tell them everything about what happened on the riverbank the night before. Both men were understanding and one actually made a drawing of one of the creatures as Charlie told the story. Then the general manager, Oliver Bryant, called Charlie and told him and Calvin to get to his office immediately. They got up to Bryant's office where Johnny Walker, the owner of the shipyard, was also waiting. Bryant wanted to know why all of his phones were blowing up with news people wanting to talk to Charlie and Calvin. We can't hardly make any calls going out. We got so many coming in, Bryant told them. Now tell us what is going on and what happened to y'all last night. Charlie and Calvin told them the whole story. After the men discussed it for a minute, Johnny Walker suggested getting a lawyer. So he called the attorney that represents the shipyard, Joe Kalingo. He felt that Kalingo could handle the flood of the media. Kalingo arrived at the shipyard and Charlie and Calvin told him their story. They also mentioned that Sheriff Diamond had asked them to come down to the police station. Because there were so many news people out in front of the sheriff's department, Charlie and Calvin were brought in the back way. Once the men were at the station, Joe Kalingo suggested the men take a lie detector test. Sheriff Diamond didn't seem too interested in a polygraph test, considering what he heard on the secret recording of the two men the night before. We don't have that type of equipment anyway, the sheriff said. A facility in Mobile, Alabama, with the proper equipment for taking a polygraph test was called, but it is said that the facility refused because they didn't want the publicity. Suddenly, Charlie thought about the possibility of being contaminated with radiation. He thought about all the people he had already come in contact with, his co-workers, people at the sheriff's office, his family. He frantically suggested that he and Calvin get tested for radiation contamination. They were then taken to Singen River Hospital, but were told that they didn't test for radiation. So a deputy then called Keesler Air Force Base and asked if they could perform such a test. Come on boys, we're going to Keesler, the deputy said as he hung up the phone. MPs greeted the men at the gates of Keesler Air Force Base. The base was essentially shut down for Charlie and Calvin. There was a team waiting on them, all dressed in PPE, personal protective equipment. Eventually, Charlie and Calvin were tested negative for radiation contamination, and everyone was relieved. It was at that point, officials from Keesler interviewed Charlie and Calvin about the incident the night before on October 11th. The interview was recorded and documented as an official Keesler Field UFO interrogation, and it seems to be the only known government document about an official investigation of a UFO abduction. The next day, Saturday, October 13th, Charlie and Calvin went back to Johnny Walker's office at the shipyard to be introduced to Dr. James Harder and Dr. J. Allen Hynek. 
Dr. Harder was a professor at the University of California and was associated with the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, known as APRO. Dr. Hynek was a professor of astronomy at Northwestern University in Chicago. Before getting to Johnny's office, Charlie and Calvin were again greeted by newspeople outside the office demanding a story. Charlie decided to give them what they wanted. He spoke until they got word that Dr. Harder had arrived. Charlie and Calvin told their story to Dr. Harder. I can't, I can't recall or I can't remember just what was on the inside simply because the light was so bright that I just couldn't, couldn't make out what it was. But I didn't see any tables or chairs and the room seemed to be round. Of course, that could have been because the light seemed to be glowing from the walls and the overhead and the ceiling. But they carried me, what, I guess, about the middle of the room, and we would just seem to be suspended there. I, I, I couldn't move. I didn't have any feelings, no sensation of, of, uh, of any feel. And it seemed to, something like a big eye. I, I keep referring to it as an eye because it was about size for small baseball. In the end, it was focused toward me. It was a different color or a different light. And it seemed to come directly out from the wall, and it came within six or eight inches of my face. And, and uh, it, it remained there for a, a few minutes, and then it, very few minutes, and then it uh, went over my entire body. I, I'm assuming it did, because when it went down like this, I seemed to be suspended. The two men had lost count on how many times they've repeated this story. Dr. Harder said that he would like to question the two men under hypnosis. Charlie was immediately adamant. Pick my mind? No way! Ain't no damn body gonna pick my mind, Charlie said. Both Charlie and Calvin were hesitant. Calvin was mostly fearful. But somehow, Dr. Harder convinced the men to be hypnotized. He assured them that they would have full control of their minds and that they could be brought out of the trance at any time. Charlie and Calvin went back to the apartment to eat lunch and came back to the office around 2 p.m. to meet Dr. Hynek. Both he and Dr. Harder asked the two men questions for what seemed like hours. Then the time came to be put under hypnosis in hopes to answer questions that otherwise couldn't be answered in waking consciousness. Charlie went first. It took Dr. Harder a little while to induce hypnosis in Charlie. It wasn't long before Charlie was back at the craft, being taken by the three wrinkled-skinned creatures. Charlie became terrified, and the session became too much for him. We must remember that at this time, it hadn't even been 48 hours since the abduction had taken place. There were tears in Charlie's eyes when he came out of the trance. He then left the room. Calvin was next. Charlie knew this was a bad idea for Calvin, but didn't say anything. Once Calvin was under... It wasn't long before a terrified Calvin was brought out of hypnosis. Dr. Hynek later said, They are not unbalanced people. They are not crackpots. An excerpt from the Mississippi Press published Sunday, October 14, 1973 says, Dr. Harder said Parker and Hickson had faced experiences for which they were totally unprepared. He compared their experiences to that of an aborigine in Australia who is suddenly confronted by a jumbo jet. Later on, the article concludes with, Dr. Hynek ended the interview on a plea that Hickson and Parker should not be ridiculed. 
they had a very real and frightening experience. In another publication, Dr. Hynek is quoted as saying, There is no question in my mind that these men have had a very terrifying experience. Under no circumstances should they be ridiculed. Let's protect these men. I went down to Pascagoula uh, completely negative, but I talked, I worked with those men for quite a while. I listened to tapes that had been taken when they didn't know they were being taped. I uh, uh, saw what, how Charlie behaved under hypnosis and uh, finally the, the lie detector test. All of those things convinced me that he was not making it up. The, they, had had, they had had an experience, period. But you can't determine whether they actually saw a flying saucer or were taken aboard one. No, I, I couldn't at all. There's, there's no, no way that I know in which um, we could determine that. It's like if you tell me that you dreamt of purple peach trees last night. What can I do about it? Well, you have to go on the assumption that he is indeed telling the truth. Well, yeah. Uh, you have to then judge by his past reputation, what, what his, how he's regarded in the community. Would he have any reason to do it? Um, all that sort of thing. So, um, I just don't know about that. Of course, it fits a pattern. You see, that's not an isolated case. We have a catalog now of well over 800 such cases. On October 23rd of this year, Charles Hickson, one of the men involved in that incident at Pascagoula, invited WWDC newsman Rudolph Brewington to his home in Gautier, Mississippi. That's just north of Pascagoula. And Hickson recalled his experience. Uh, last year on October the 16th, in the fall of the year, Calvin Parker and myself, we, uh, at that time we were employed by F.B. Walker and Son Shipyard in Pascagoula. Uh, and sometime during the day on By the next day, Sunday, the men had made the front page of the newspaper. The headline read, Scientists term Pascagoula UFO report as true. Part of the article reads, Dr. Harder said their experience was indeed a real one. It was no hallucination. He said it would be practically impossible for the two men to simulate their feelings of terror while they were under hypnosis. Charlie and Calvin both commented on the article that morning over breakfast and coffee. Soon, Dr. Harder was standing at Charlie's door. He came to see Charlie and Calvin before he had to fly back to California to continue his university duties. Dr. Harder convinced Calvin to be put under hypnosis again right there in the living room. But once again, Calvin became frightened and had to be brought out from under hypnosis. The next day, Monday, October 15, 1973, Charlie and Calvin were again hoping that with the beginning of the new week, life would get back to normal. But it was impossible. The shipyard continued to be flooded with phone calls and news people, not only distracting Charlie and Calvin, but everyone working on the shipyard. Management finally told them to take two weeks off with pay. So Charlie and Calvin left work for a couple of weeks, again hoping to get away from all the hype and get their lives back to normal. Charlie stayed at his apartment, of course, and Calvin went back to Laurel, Mississippi. Calvin would never return to the F.B. Walker shipyard. In fact, Calvin sent back the check for the paid two weeks off. 
During this time, it was again apparent to both the men that it would be a long time before life would get back to normal, if ever. Charlie kept getting bombarded by concerned friends and family members. News people were constantly demanding a story from Charlie, showing up at his apartment almost every day for weeks. Calvin was back home in Laurel and was still scheduled to marry his fiancée, Waynette, in November. The day Calvin got back to Laurel, he went to see his fiancée, and there in her living room already sat a reporter looking for Calvin, demanding an interview. Calvin was angry at first, but ultimately decided that maybe if he gave an interview, the media would stop hounding him. Plus, it would let everyone in his community know that he was okay. Calvin just wanted everyone to forget about it. Although with the way Charlie seemed to enjoy the attention, it didn't seem like anyone would forget about it anytime soon. Calvin took the reporter's card and promised to get back with him about doing an interview. Otherwise, Calvin just tried to focus on spending time with his fiance and family. Those that he visited gave him the respect of not asking him about the incident. It seemed that they could sense his frustration and exhaustion and didn't want to upset him. That week, Calvin got a job working in the oil field industry. It was nice. No one asked him about the incident in Pascagoula. He knew most of his co-workers already since most of his family also worked in the oil fields. Calvin was working seven days a week, eight hours a day, and trying to get as much overtime as he could so he could save up for his marriage. Calvin was enjoying his work, and things seemed to actually be getting back to normal. That is, until a news crew found Calvin at his job. They demanded an interview and wouldn't take no for an answer. They were disturbing Calvin's work as well as everyone else's. Calvin told them to leave, but they persisted. He told them that he was too busy, asked them how they even knew where to find him, but they kept pressing for an interview, for some kind of exclusive. Calvin's boss finally told him to get rid of the news crew or he'd get rid of him. Only after the threat of Calvin losing his job did the news crew back off and finally leave. Calvin later called the news station and told them to leave him alone, that he just wanted to do his job and live his life. The station manager had no sympathy and told Calvin that the crew was just doing their job. Calvin's stress level began to surge at this point. He almost just lost his job in a matter of moments because of some relentless news crew. He began to wonder what else could happen. He now felt like he always had to have an eye over his shoulder at work. And what about his family? His fiance? Will they come after them? Calvin desperately just wanted all this to be over with, but there seemed to be no end in sight. Calvin was getting to the point where he couldn't handle the stress. He started having paranoid thoughts about the creatures that abducted him. He started wondering if they may have been some sort of demons or something. Calvin finally decided that if he wanted the press to back off, then he might as well give an interview every once in a while. Hell, he'd want to know about something like this if it had happened to someone else. At this point, Charlie contacted Calvin, asking if he would go on the Michael Douglas talk show with him. After some reluctance and pondering, Calvin agreed to go on the show only because he believed this would put an end to people trying to constantly contact him about the abduction. Both men flew to Chicago, 
all expenses paid. The night before they were to appear on the show, Calvin and Charlie had dinner together. It was the first time they had really been together since the incident. During the dinner, Calvin asked Charlie why he wanted all this publicity, but Calvin never received a straight answer. The next day, a limousine picked the men up and drove them just across the street to the studio. Calvin wondered why they didn't just walk. Then they were put up in a room where a crew would apply makeup to their faces. Calvin refused to have any makeup put on him. Then they were led to a green room to wait before going in front of the cameras. Calvin noticed that the green room was actually painted blue, and he just told himself that all these people were just crazy. This whole city was crazy. Calvin just wanted everything to be over soon. Calvin barely remembers what happened on the show. He remembers getting sick to his stomach and answering a few questions the best he could. Otherwise, Charlie did all the talking. When it was all over, the men got on a plane and headed home. As they flew, Charlie asked Calvin how he was dealing with everything. Calvin told him that he just wanted the press and the rest of the media to leave him alone. Once the plane landed, the two men parted ways once again. Calvin went home and plowed a garden and thought about how lucky he was to live in the South, where life was much more simple than life in the big city. Calvin's southern home is where he felt the most safe. Calvin's wedding was coming up. It was set for November 9th, 1973, just less than a month after the incident. And even though Calvin gave an interview on national television, the press still hounded him. The amount of daily stress continued to rise in Calvin's life. He couldn't go get groceries without people asking about the incident. The press and news crews still came to his home and found him at work. It was getting too much for Calvin. It all came to a head one evening when Calvin arrived home from work. After a shower, he went to lie down. Suddenly, Calvin's body started to shake uncontrollably. He tried to just relax, but the longer he laid there, the worse the shaking got. Calvin's brother, who was staying in the other room, must have heard him and came to check on him. It scared his brother. Calvin's brother loaded him up in the car and took him to the hospital. The shaking had become worse. So much so that when they got to the entrance of the hospital, Calvin needed assistance as he couldn't even walk. The nurses provided him with a wheelchair. Once inside the ER waiting room, Calvin's shaking became even worse. He got so bad that he couldn't talk properly. After an hour of waiting, Calvin's brother asked a nurse how much longer it would be before they got help. She told him that they'd get to him when they got to him. Calvin became enraged and asked his brother to go to the car to get his jacket because he was freezing at this point. Once Calvin's brother was out of sight, he stood up and threw the wheelchair against the wall to get the nurse's attention. In no time, hospital security had Calvin restrained and down on the ground. A doctor then showed up and gave Calvin a shot to calm him down and asked what was going on. Calvin told the doctor that he'd been waiting there for two hours without any help. The doctor then chewed out the nurses and got Calvin in a room. His blood pressure was 205 over 105 with a heart rate of 160 beats a minute. The doctor gave Calvin more medicine to calm his body and get his vitals back to normal. 
Later, the doctor asked Calvin if he had been under any stress lately. Calvin almost laughed in his face. The doctor informed him that he should stay in the hospital for a couple of days to be monitored. He also explained that what Calvin was experiencing was an emotional breakdown, and that if he didn't stay under observation at the hospital, his symptoms could get worse. After a couple of days, once Calvin was discharged from the hospital, the attending physician recommended a doctor for Calvin to see and a prescription for some medicine. Calvin threw the prescription in the trash on the way out of the hospital and told himself that he would just deal with it. In hindsight, Calvin now says that he should have followed the doctor's advice. Calvin later sat his fiancée down and told her about the breakdown. He also finally spoke with her about what happened in Pascagoula. The both exchanged how they felt about the whole ordeal. They now both felt even better about getting married as they now both felt that they were on the same page emotionally. The wedding proceeded as planned. It was small and simple, and Calvin and his wife, Waynette, wouldn't have had it any other way. During the time of Calvin's breakdown, Charlie continued his life as a shipbuilder at the shipyard. The media continued to hound him as well, but he took it much better than Calvin. Charlie didn't mind telling his story. He seemed to enjoy the attention. Once again, the idea of Charlie taking a polygraph test was brought up, this time by the news media. Charlie agreed to do the test. The test was reportedly performed at Pendleton Detectives Incorporated in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the presence of Sheriff Fred Diamond and his chief deputy. The test confirmed that Charlie was telling the truth. However, there is a lot of skepticism that looms over this test. As pointed out by Philip Class, an aviation journalist and outright skeptic of anything UFO-related, the polygraph test was performed by a young operator who had not yet completed his formal training, nor was he certified by the school he had attended. He was also without a state license. Class also points out that Joe Kalingo, the lawyer representing Charlie and Calvin, turned down the chance for the men to have a polygraph test performed on them without charge by an experienced operator at the Mobile Police Department. Class goes on to say that Kalingo never reached out to any nearby experienced operators and instead chose the young, inexperienced, uncertified operator in New Orleans, over a hundred miles away, who also happened to work for a friend of Kalingo's. Now this is all very sketchy and anyone with this information would naturally become skeptical of the results. But as pointed out by William Mendez, the author who helped Charlie write and publish his book about the incident, there is no substantial evidence that Joe Kalingo and the young operator performed any acts of collusion or that the two even knew each other at the time. Not to mention that such an incredible story as Charlie and Calvin's is rarely going to be believed anyway, no matter what the circumstances. And because of this, both Charlie and Calvin almost immediately agreed to have a polygraph test performed, but because of the secret tape, Sheriff Diamond and other authorities dismissed the idea, thinking it wasn't that important. 
especially since the tape was already so convincing. But what is evident is that Joe Kalingo's interests had to do with profit. He had written up a contract for the two men to sign that stipulated that he would receive one-third of any profits resulting from the sale of his client's story. Kalingo believed that if a polygraph test demonstrated that the men's story was true, then the story would be worth money. Although it seems evident that Kalingo was only interested in making a buck off the two men, this still doesn't prove that their story isn't true. It only shows a greedy, manipulative lawyer being, well, a greedy, manipulative lawyer. Also, Charlie and Calvin soon terminated any dealings with Kalingo not long after they had first met him. Kalingo became their lawyer almost by accident. The morning after the incident, when Charlie and Calvin could barely do any work and found themselves in their boss's office, the owner of the shipyard, Johnny Walker, if you remember, suggested that the men get legal counsel. And so, he called the shipyard's attorney, Joe Kalingo. So by the end of October, Kalingo wanted a polygraph test, and so did Charlie and Calvin. It's important to note here that the Pendleton Detective Agency was not the first place contacted about having a polygraph test performed. The first place contacted wanted the men to come to them, but for some reason, neither Sheriff Diamond nor Joe Kalingo was willing to drive the men to the facility. The company also wanted to charge the customary fee to perform the test, but Kalingo argued that it should be free as a public service. The second place called was a Mississippi State Agency, but they refused to perform the test since the men hadn't been charged with any crime. Pondering other options, Kalingo remembered that one of his friends from college had a brother who directed a detective agency in New Orleans. So Kalingo made a call, and voila, the men had scheduled a free polygraph test. Also, earlier I mentioned that the test was reportedly performed at the offices of the Pendleton Agency in New Orleans. This is in fact reported incorrectly. The examiner, whose name is Scott Glasgow, made a house call from New Orleans to Pascagoula, meaning that Glasgow came to them to perform the test. Here, Mendez asked these questions. Was Glasgow competent to administer the polygraph test? Would the Pendleton agency send someone who they suspected was less than competent? After all, Glasgow had been administering polygraph tests for the agency for about a year at this point. Mendez goes on to say that it is his belief that any past or future polygraph test is irrelevant to determining the truth or falsity of the Pascagoula abduction. Also, and this is just my own personal inquiry, aren't polygraph tests not that reliable anyway? Haven't researchers recently determined that polygraph tests aren't as reliable as once thought, even with the advances in technology that we experience today? So how accurate could a polygraph test be in 1973, regardless of who the operator is? I think it's safe to say that whoever has heard the secret tape cannot doubt that Charlie and Calvin are telling the truth. Let's fast forward a little bit. It is now February 1976. A man by the name of John Krause is about to hypnotize Charlie and Calvin. Krause was recommended by William Mendez, who if you remember is the co-author of Charlie's book. Mendez is present in this session. Krause is the director of the Krause Hypnosis Center in Detroit, 
He has over 25 years of experience as a professional hypnotherapist and has received awards and certificates from the American Institute of Hypnosis in the areas of psychotherapeutic analysis, medical hypnosis, dental hypnosis, and hypnotherapy. Krauss has also taught hypnosis to doctors, dentists, and other professionals in Michigan. Now before we talk about this hypnosis session, I want to go over some of the concerns about hypnotic therapy. One of the greatest concerns in using hypnotherapy is the possibility of accidentally influencing the subject's testimony with leading questions. While the subject is in a deep hypnotic trance, they are extremely suggestible and they desire to please the hypnotist. If the hypnotist is not careful, it is possible to feed answers to the subject. In fact, as you will see, there were many times when Krauss and Mendez deliberately tried to steer Charlie's answers down a certain path, but it proved impossible, only adding to the legitimacy to Charlie's regressive account of the incident. Another note I want to make concerns the reliability of hypnotic regressive therapy. Several times has regressive therapy been used successfully as evidence in a court of law. It played a central role in obtaining a conviction in the case of Harding v. State in Maryland in 1967. In 1974, plaintiffs were awarded combined damages of over $600,000 in the Weiler v. Fairchild Hiller Corporation case. The most significant evidence in the case was revealed by the use of hypnotic regression. The Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo, was convicted on murder charges after he was hypnotically regressed and revealed how he gained entry to the victims' homes, assaulted them, and strangled them. He gave such detailed descriptions of the victims' home furnishings and furniture that the jury could not doubt that he had actually been there and did what he said he did. Although hypnosis is not infallible, there are errors that can occur. And in an attempt to avoid such errors, Mr. Mendez was careful to select an experienced practitioner. Mr. John Krauss is who he settled on. So, as Krauss began his first session with Charlie, he assured Charlie that he would not be put under some kind of mind control as Charlie feared. Krauss assured him that he would be in control of his mind and that he could terminate the session at any time. Charlie laid on his back with a blindfold over his eyes. It took about 30 minutes to induce Charlie into a deep trance. Charlie was then taken back to October 11th, 1973. Charlie spoke about the events that occurred before the incident. He spoke about being at work that day, noticing some of the workers coming back late from lunch. He then mentions him and Calvin talking about fishing after work. What's happening here is that Charlie is speaking as if he is reliving that day instead of witnessing it. Any verbs he uses in his sentences are in the present tense. When he mentions his and Calvin's conversation, for example, he says, me and Calvin's talking about going fishing. Charlie then speaks about eating supper at the apartment his wife prepared. Then he talks about being at the river fishing. Charlie mentions the old pier. He speaks about catching a hardhead catfish and keeps repeating how they're not going to catch any good fish at this spot. Then Charlie pauses for a long time. His hands begin to twitch and he starts to sweat. Krauss tells him not to be afraid. Charlie's breathing becomes heavy. Charlie begins yelling Calvin's name. Did you hear that? Charlie is panicking now. Oh my God, what is it? It's got some blue lights on it. it no, it, it's not touching the ground. 
Charlie's breathing is extremely heavy at this point. From here, Charlie basically tells the story of what happened that night to him and Calvin, while Kraus tries his best to keep him calm and guide him through. The only thing interesting to note here is that when Charlie gets to the part where the creatures grab him, he mentions the sharp pain in his left shoulder. That pain in Charlie's arm is one of many events of the night that remain inexplicable. What was that pain? Was it an electrical shock? Was it an injection of some kind to calm Charlie down? Was that what caused Charlie to become helpless and paralyzed? Did they put something inside of Charlie? Who knows? But what is significant is that Charlie started bleeding from that same spot the next day. Under hypnosis, Charlie recalled bleeding from a small puncture on his upper left arm, right where he remembers the creatures grabbing him. The bleeding was enough for repeated wipes from his handkerchief. Sometimes it would continue to bleed for so long that Charlie began to worry. This was witnessed by Calvin and Charlie's wife, Blanche. The bleeding finally stopped by that Friday evening, and to make it even more strange, Charlie couldn't find any evidence of a puncture wound or even broken skin anywhere on his arm after it stopped bleeding. It was as if his arm healed itself, or like nothing ever happened. Charlie didn't report the bleeding to anyone after the abduction happened. While under hypnosis, Krauss asked Charlie questions about the bleeding arm mystery. Charlie revealed that he first noticed it the morning after the abduction about 8 a.m. He was already at work and wiped the blood off with a handkerchief at the time. Later that day, after work, he looked at his arm and noticed a small puncture wound. Not long after that, it started bleeding again. He then showed it to Calvin and Blanche. Charlie then took a shower and the bleeding stopped. Under hypnosis, Charlie showed no concern about the bleeding and just thought that maybe it was from a piece of steel that may have hit him at work. Charlie continues under hypnosis describing what the creatures look like. There's moments where Charlie begins to cry and speak through his tears, again as if he is reliving the incident. One more thing I want to point out about Charlie's regressive session has to do with what I mentioned earlier about possibly influencing the subject with leading questions. Dr. Krauss and Mendez actually purposefully asked Charlie leading questions just to see if Charlie would waver from his account. This proved impossible. Each time Krauss or Mendez tried to steer Charlie off course, Charlie, under hypnosis, would correct them. For example, Mendez asked Charlie about the object that scanned him while aboard the craft. Charlie is trying to describe exactly what the circular object that resembled a big eye, if you remember, looked like in detail. Charlie, under hypnosis, says it looks like a crystal. He says, its surface seems to be smooth, clear, and not rough. Mendez then asks a leading question. Like a diamond? You know how a diamond has different surfaces? It's angular and Charlie cuts him off with, no, no. It's not like a diamond. Charlie rejects Mendez's leading question and attempts to correct the details as they exist in his memory. Something else Charlie mentioned under hypnosis that had never been revealed was that he saw what looked like a TV screen in the wall facing him and the creatures. Krauss asked Charlie if this could have been a window, and Charlie's response was, it could be. This is very interesting because one, this is a detail that has only been brought out of Charlie's memory by hypnosis. And two, Krauss again gave Charlie a leading question 
asking if it could be a window, and because Charlie honestly didn't know what it was, he still didn't give in to the suggestion of it being a window. Instead, he seemed to give the honest, genuine, open-minded answer of, it could be. Shortly after, Krauss brings him out of the hypnosis. It is now Calvin's turn. Krauss induces Calvin in much the same way he did Charlie. When Calvin begins to speak, he talks about him and Charlie at the riverbank fishing. What I want to note here is that Calvin is speaking as if he is witnessing the event as opposed to reliving it as Charlie did. Calvin speaks in a very matter-of-fact tone, describing the events of the day in past tense as if he is just speaking from memory. Nothing else extraordinary is revealed with this regression therapy with Krauss. But what I do think is important is that both men under hypnosis describe the night's events almost precisely as they reported to the police that same night. The details are consistent. The only thing different is that Calvin mentions under hypnosis that he remembers going into the craft as opposed to passing out, which we've already established didn't actually happen. Otherwise, details about the craft, the descriptions of the creatures, all these things are consistent with the secret tape the interviews with police, and the interrogation at Keesler Air Force Base. Now, there are other times in the future that both Charlie and Calvin are individually hypnotized. In these particular sessions, it seems that each hypnotist digs a little deeper and reveals a little more about the men's memories of that night. Maybe they ask the right questions or have a way of gaining the subject's trust in order to allow them to reveal certain things about their past Nevertheless, the details I will discuss in these hypnotic sessions are extraordinary. Calvin shares details about a familiar face he saw on board the craft that night. And 20 years later, he experiences missing time. Hypnosis is the only thing that reveals what happened during those missing hours. And Charlie supposedly has subsequent encounters, and one of them has several witnesses. What is revealed by both Charlie and Calvin during these regressive therapy sessions demonstrates that the abduction that happened on October 11, 1973 is only the very tip of the iceberg of the mystery that apparently surrounded both men all their lives. But you'll have to tune in next time for part two, right here on Paris and Surrounds.